It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up later in the programme, why millennials aren't getting more right-wing with age. Uh, that's a discussion with the director of the think tank, Onward, Sebastian Payne. Um, he is getting more right-wing with age, it is. <laughs> more on that in a moment. Uh, but first, obviously, what we most love giving you on a Tuesday is more bad news. Shockingly, things are more expensive in shops than yes. they were before. So shop price inflation's risen to the highest level since the British Retail Consortium started collecting figures on this in 2005. The good news is that food inflation's actually come down a bit, but it doesn't match up with what the official data say. This I mean, is. if you blinked, you'd miss the fall in food price inflation as well, because it's for da- down to 15.4% from mm. 15.7%. Great. So I don't think we'll all be feeling richer as a result of that. I mean, I don't mean to be so flippant about this, but it does feel, it, it just does feel like that inflation is has been around for what feels like so long now. We've all seen the prices going up. I mean, I'm just not holding out hope for, for things to come down soon. Am I just being overly pessimistic? It's been here and it looks like it's going to stay. You had that core inflation reading that was meant to hold steady going up in the latest official data. This is sending off alarm bells. You've got former Bank of England policymakers, all be they rather hawkish, saying that interest rates could go up to 6%. So not good news for homeowners. But look, even it's a question of what the government does about it. They're now talking about, you know, how, trying to get supermarkets to sign up voluntarily to codes for minimum prices as well, which, you know, after a long time living in France, all sounds very familiar, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the chief economist of the Bank of England, Hugh Pill, got in a lot of hot water for talking about the idea of inflation becoming embedded as a game of pass the parcel. This is the government's attempt to try to stop the music. Will the supermarkets listen? We'll have to see. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak is busy talking about something completely different. He's written an article in the Sun newspaper today uh, about vaping, uh, declaring a war on vape makers who target children, saying he doesn't want his his daughters uh, to become vapers. This feels very much like a sideshow. Well, he is a self-confessed coke addict, so I'm sure he's got empathy with the smokers and the vapors. We all have our vices, of course, um, and Rishi Sunak's is Coca-Cola, as we have learned. But from one issue emitting a lot of concerning smoke 
to another, a deadline for the government to hand over WhatsApp messages and other notes from the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson to the COVID inquiry has been delayed until Thursday in a brewing row over the material. So some of the notes have already been shared to the inquiry in redacted form, but the inquiry says that failing to release the full details would be a criminal offence. We've got our UK government editor Stuart Biggs in studio with us for more on this. Stuart, is, is this just a lot of smoke uh, or how important is the material that is being discussed here? Well, on a certain level, it's, you know, go, going back in time quite a bit. But having said that, you know, the, the COVID inquiry uh, has the potential to be very significant, both for Johnson's own sort of legacy and reputation, but also the current government, given it's this, you know, it is the same uh, political party. Sunak was a massive figure in the Johnson administration. So it's not as though what happens in the COVID inquiry, Sunak can you know, can wash his hands of it. So so it does have implications. Um, this row, you could argue, has blown up bigger because it's Boris Johnson and, and it's his texts and diaries that are involved. But, but, but it uh, does, you know, it reaches across the government. And the Cabinet Office is wanting them not to be handed over, these messages. I have to wonder... And what's the Cabinet Office's argument for not handing them over? I have to wonder who was texting Boris Johnson that doesn't want their messages seen. I think we we don't know uh, exactly, you know, the, what's in these messages or or the dates that it relates to. But you can extrapolate a little bit from uh, the fact that, you know, the argument is built around Cabinet Office saying, you know, there's material in these messages that isn't specific to the COVID inquiry. And the COVID inquiry is saying, you know what, we're the ones who get to decide this. And you, if you think back, and, and we are extrapolating, but if you think back to that period of January to March uh, 2020, so before the first lockdown, you've got COVID starting to spread through Europe, the problems in Italy, everyone wondering what the UK's move is. And the knock on Johnson at the time was that he was missing um, COBRA meetings, the emergency meetings. He was taking time off to do this and that. If you're the cabinet office, you don't particularly want that laid bare. And you can say, yes, a diary entry saying this and that isn't related to COVID. But at the same time, the COVID inquiry can say COVID was happening at that time. So it's very, very relevant what the prime ministers were doing, what the chancellor was doing. Sunak was the chancellor at the time. All these things are relevant from the perspective of the inquiry so that you can see where the fight is is taking place. You can also see why business being conducted by WhatsApp could be more less than formal, let's say. Yeah. So you can you can start to see what's worrying uh, the government on this. You've Even- already seen the tone in Hancock's text. I, I mean, this is true of almost all organisations. There's so much work done on messaging now. Apps. Are WhatsApp, Steve. Exactly, yeah. Well, I'd prefer not. Uh, but I think that, that's, that's the point, isn't it? Is that so much of, of this communication that used to go through more formal channels that thus were available for freedom of information requests and the rest of it are being done through informal channels. And, and is it sort of a, is this a reflection that the inquiry wants the rules to be updated to, to reflect how business is being done? I think that's why this this whole argument is starting to have sort of far-reaching consequences because you can imagine, you know, if these texts are handed over, future business within government, people are going to be wary about what they commit to WhatsApp, what they commit to different messaging forums. The implications of this, you know, we talk about it from the perspective of journalism. 
how does a public inquiry in the future take place if all the mess if, if all ministers conduct their business in in disappearing messages you know on time mm. time disappearance or whatever so they, this is a specific issue but it the implications are pretty broad uh, in terms of how government business is conducted and then you go back to what this is really about in the specifics it's it's how the government responded to you know the biggest public health crisis of a, of a, of a century and so it's bad for Johnson if if certain things come out presumably but it's not great for Sunak if certain things come out either how the government responded to covid will have an impact and and it's still a very sensitive issue among voters you can, you can see why it's being fought at the highest level but do you think that voters really do tar Sunak with that same brush? Because I know he got his fine for attending that meeting early. He says that he was being nerdy and, you know, just just wanted to get there early. Um, but is this not more damaging for the party more broadly, which Sunak outpolls anyway? Yes. I, well, it's certainly true that Sunak is more popular than the Tories in terms of when you look at the surveys. But there's... Sunak being the chancellor throughout, I mean, we don't know, for example, what the WhatsApps show around Eat Out to Help Out, which was this, you know, program after the first lockdown to try and boost restaurants and hospitality settings that had really, for obvious reasons, had struggled. And so that was Sunak's policy. It was, he put his name to it, he's literally signed it. So we don't know, for example, what's in those, in that discussion around it. When we had to go into second lockdown, the criticism from public health experts was that the eat out to help out policy had helped seed the next round, you know, the next surge in infections. And so it could be sensitive. How ministers were discussing that at the time is something that the inquiry wants to look at. And so you can see risk there. Could this end up in the courts? Is this something that could go to a, a full, full sort of legal challenge, do you think? The sense is that the government wouldn't particularly enjoy this ending up in the courts. If you're the government, they, they appointed the judge to look at COVID. So it's not as though they can paint it as a hostile uh, appointment. It was their choice. And then if it went to the court, the government is effectively fighting to keep its own material away from a judge that it appointed. It's Regardless of the precedents and the arguments around precedent, it's not a good look because effectively you're fighting a court case to keep material out of the public eye. And I think you could, you know, if you're the government, you might be determined to keep this material out, but it, you're still going to have to face that argument at the end of it that, that you were trying to keep things quiet. And people will inevitably assume that there's stuff that's embarrassing. And when Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, quit over bullying, we spoke to the Civil Service Managers Union, the FDA, talking about how low morale is in the civil service. What does this say about relations between the government and the civil service? Has there been a complete breakdown of trust? It's certainly the evidence of that is is starting to mount, that it's not only on sort of policy but also in terms of relationships professional relationships uh, between ministers and officials it looks to have broken we're just seeing you know story after story suggesting that that's the case it's also you know an inevitability that after 13 years in office there's 
less momentum and excitement mm. perhaps and determination on both sides to come up with something that's that's new and changing and 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 going to improve the country it's politically it's starting to look quite tired but also that relationship is also starting to look tired and strained between ministers and, and their officials okay Stuart Biggs our UK government editor thanks for being with us in the studio now, have 13 years of Tory government in the UK upended one of the oldest political cliches in the book that people get more right-wing as they get older? A new report from the centre-right think tank Onward shows the Tory brand is tarnished among 25 to 40-year-olds. Joining us now to discuss the phenomenon they're calling missing millennials is the director of Onward, Sebastian Payne. Seb, good to have you with us on the programme. Is this a sign of just how bad the Conservative government has been for young people over the past 13 years? Well, our research shows that where people started to diverge from becoming more right-wing as they get over older is about the time of the financial crash. And, of course, the 25 to 40-year-olds we've been talking to, you know, most of their working careers have been in the wake of the crash and all the economic impacts that have had that. But, yes, they look at the Conservative Party, they don't feel very op- um, happy or optimistic about it, that uh, our research shows that if there was a general election um, um, tomorrow, just... 21% would vote Conservative compared to 45% for the Labour Party. And I think it's worth remembering that a lot of this generation doesn't have a memory of, of, li- of living and working under a Labour government. So clearly they feel as if there is a need for change and they're looking at both political parties and they feel it's the Labour Party that's, in, that's more in touch with them and has got a better offering for the things that they care about. So what are those things? What are the key issues for that demographic? So a lot of them are quite similar to the rest of the country. So it's actually, it's the economy, it's the cost of living crisis, uh, it's housing, and it's also the environment. But what we've identified in our Missing Millennials report is that uh, taxation is actually an issue they care about more than you'd think about otherwise. That on the surface, many millennials, you know, tend to have um, left-leaning economic views. But in fact, actually, when we put to them, you know, would you prefer um, the government to take money to redistribute it or would you prefer to keep it for yourselves they actually lean more towards tax cuts in that thing so we're calling millennials shy capitalists because on the surface as i said they might look as if they're left-leaning economically but below the surface they still actually do believe in lower taxation so you can see a way the conservative party can sort of you know um lean in that get, do an offer that would actually work for them but as i said it's the brand issue at the moment and i think that honestly rishi sunak is going to have to focus on delivering on his top five priorities getting the economy into a better place getting inflation down and then would be able to you know um get a better offer for them but i mean he doesn't have that long to do it even if the election is at the last possible date how how can the Conservatives, or indeed Labour, in fact, win over this demographic? So we argue, first of all, they're talking about the economy, that if you put economic issues versus social issues, it's the economic issue that they care about the most, that, uh, you know, they, they, they do care about, you know, free speech, race and all the kind of so-called culture war issues. But if you put them against the economy in our research, the economy triumphs every time. So in some respects, there is the, that is where you have to focus. And as part of this research, we did focus groups in uh, Basingstoke, in Stourbridge and in Middlesbrough 
Middlesbrough, across England. And the thing that came out again and again is people just want to feel as if lives are getting better. They are an optimistic generation. They do feel as if there is a positivity for the future. But ultimately, they also feel that, you know, it's Labour who's going to live it for them. So I think at the moment, Mr Sunak has to make good progress on his five points and then put forward some kind of new economic vision that speaks to their lives. And yes, that is going to include housing. Yes, it is going to include childcare and some kind of form of vision offer on taxation. Well, Rishi Sunak's already prioritising the economy and it didn't give him the result he wanted in the local elections is it maybe that this is the children of austerity coming of age and not turning tory so i think obviously the local elections were only sort of six months or so after mr sunak became prime minister and i think if you were asking people in downing street they would say we need more time to turn around the oil tank or something like that that obviously you know there, there was a lot of chaos over the last year and i think what he's trying to do is just say to the country we can effectively govern so i think that's the first thing and um, but i think in terms of public services you know what's the thing that's interesting about millennials is that the nhs comes further down their list of priorities because when they look at things you know they are in a situation where they're not interacting with the NHS as much as older cohorts who care much more about that but I think we did start to tap into a thing that there is some there are some areas where I think they could be convinced of the need of reforming um, the health service um, in the future but for the moment it's not necessarily about that I think it is much more just about the economy it's about jobs and it's about housing. Well, on, on the point of housing, I mean, it's very hard not to look at any of these things and not say, well, the Tories have been in power for 13 years. Maybe someone else could do a better job. You know, what, what can the Tories do now at this late stage in their, in their reign to, uh, to point to the fact that they can turn around the housing issue? So obviously the government's had several attempts at planning reform and I think there's still things underway at the moment and we're still waiting for something to come from the department for levelling up and I'm sure they're going to try and strike that balance between what's acceptable to Conservative MPs and what's going to unblock the housing market when it's needed and onward we've actually got a paper coming out this summer um, looking at how we can really try and stimulate house building in urban areas because I think there are some places where people actively do want more stuff to be built and you know the, the fact is the housing system in the UK has got a lot of complex issues you can't just click a finger and suddenly make it better and build more houses you know there needs to be lots of kind of reforms at a national and a local level so I think what I would like to see is the government getting stuck in some of those specific issues about you know in urban areas on brownfield sites and you can start to put things forward there because I think ultimately for Rishi Sunak and for the Conservatives, as you said, it's probably a year, year and a half to the next general election. The best hope is to almost do a down payment on where things might come in the future to say, look, you know, we've made some progress on taxation. We've made some progress on housing. You know, stick with us and we can deliver on those things. Don't risk it with Labour. That's fundamentally what I think the next election is going to look like. And the question for voters is, do they buy into that message or do they still say, ultimately, it's just time for change? The other thing I should say as well from our research is that, um, you know, the two silver linings to the negative perceptions of the Conservative Party, one is the shy capitalist thing I talked about earlier. The other is Rishi Sunak himself. Now, he's not quite the first millennial prime minister, but he's almost on the cusp of it. And he has very positive ratings amongst the 25 to 40 year old generation, the 30 to uh, 20, the 30 to 40 year olds, 25 points ahead, uh, put him 25 points ahead of the Conservative Party. 
party amongst 25 to 30 votes, it's 20 points ahead. So you can see there's something in the prime minister that they find more appealing than the Conservative Party. So you can see come the next election, the Conservatives will want to try and put him front and centre of the campaign. And this suggests that there, there may be an electoral benefit to doing so. But Seb, the Tories had the opportunity to woo millennials who are having babies with the childcare reforms. You know, it was front and centre in the budget. And yet the complaint has been that not enough money was put into it. There isn't the staff to make it work. Should the Chancellor have done more when he had the opportunity? The childcare package was huge. I mean, if you look at the amount of money that was in it, and I think that's one thing we started to pick up in our focus groups. I think it was in Basingstoke that people were saying, you know, this is a really good thing. This is the kind of thing that is on our side there. Obviously, you know, we've done a lot of stuff on childcare on onward and did a paper that I think influenced the Chancellor's thinking. And we would like him to go more and do further. And one of the ideas we suggested is a simplified system of childcare credits. We've also talked about allowing parents to potentially front load child benefit to help them in the early years of a child's life. So there are much bigger and more fundamental reforms. And, you know, there's obviously an autumn statement coming next year and a budget before we get to the election. So, you know, we've been advocating for the government to do more on that. That's what we would like to see. But obviously with all this stuff, you know, everything you get, you talk about and you get into a situation is we need to put more money into it. You know, the Chancellor did that with childcare, but also looking at how it works and are you really, you know, doing enough reform to the outputs of the system, not just what's going into it. Seb, I understand, obviously, your focus on the economic issues that we've talked about, but what about the bigger picture around the party? You know, the emergence of the National Conservatives group, the the, the hard right members of the Tory party who are very prominent uh, in this and in previous administrations as well. Are they putting younger people off? I mean, obviously, it, you know, the Conservative Party always enjoys having a debate about conservatism and that clearly, you know, hasn't changed right now. And I think that what is interesting is that people are looking towards the future where, you know, particularly the, the next election, the Conservatives are going to be asking for a fifth term, which is something that is going to be uh, historic in the party's history. And you can see why people want to have a debate of ideas and an onward where running a future of conservatism project that is looking to refresh and renew the ideas particularly on the economic front that obviously we feel that you know that we need to be much more radical about looking about the interaction between social and economic that we want to see a state that is active not absent and one that is trying to share share prosperity and devolve power as much as possible across the whole country so you know you know obviously there are some people who've got ideas that will speak to millennials some that obviously don't but i think it's a good and healthy thing that people are looking about where things should go after the next election because as i said you know going to the votes and saying we've been in power for 14 years give us another five years that is going to need bold and fresh thinking yeah i mean you speak about sunak's popularity and what lies ahead after the next election if he doesn't win he he wasn't the man that the members chose to lead the party does the system for electing a leader need to be updated well, I think we live in a parliamentary democracy, and I think the Conservative Party's procedures reflect that fact that ultimately this is about, you know, who has the confidence of MPs and of Parliament. And, you know, obviously Theresa May was elected and did not get the mandate from members because, directly because of the shorter timetable there as well. And, you know, look, who knows what's going to happen after the next election? I think the focus now is really just on, you know, trying to figure out what can be done in the remaining time of this Parliament and ensuring, you know, I think, oh, 
ultimately, if you look at the kind of work we're doing, we've had lots of interest from MPs um, on the millennial visa. So it does make me think that they are really engaged in this question. And I think the fact that Rishi Sunak has got that particular bounce amongst 25 to 40 year olds should be for MPs who are maybe not entirely happy, would like to see tax cuts. Well, I think the fact is, you know, you've got to give the Prime Minister time to try and do that. And then seeing hopefully the economy turns a corner, inflation starts to come down. And at that point, I think things were just feeling a bit more optimistic, which is ultimately what millennials want. So just between us millennials, do you think that there are enough younger people in the Conservative Party that can actually be, you know, the right voices in the room to help drive these parties, with these policies? So obviously, um, I Look, obviously, Bim Afawami, who's done the Forward to Our Report, he's 37 and he is a millennial MP himself. And I think both, I know that he's talked to many of his colleagues who have shared these kind of feelings as well. So I think there are plenty of people in the Conservative Party, in Parliament and beyond, who are in their 30s. And there's plenty of groups who are focusing on this too. There's one called Next Gen Tories who have been very enthusiastic about the research we've done as well. So I think ultimately, you know, one of the Conservative Party's greatest strengths is its ability to renew and to to constantly think about where its electorate is going next. And the reason that we're doing this report and trying to raise this now is because we think this is a potential electoral time bomb if it's not challenged, because previous generations have sort of trended more conservative as they've got older. So you've got people as they gain houses and families. Yes, they then then become more right wing. But I think ultimately, if this doesn't happen with millennials, and by the way, you are seeing this in other Western countries as well. It's not just uh, in the UK. And I think this goes back to the crash and the impact of that it's had on the jobs market that you've got to be aware of it and you've got to be tackling it now and as I said come the election all political parties will have to make judgment calls about who and where you're targeting and I think the Conservatives need to be aware that the millennials they need to think about now not just for the next election but where the party goes in a decade's time because in a decade's time you know millennials are the biggest majority 21% of parliamentary seats that's obviously just going to rise as they get older so you've got to be thinking and wooing them over now and I think there's plenty of people who are engaged with this question and hopefully we'll find something in our research that they can take and run with. And finally, Seb, speaking of giving young people opportunities, are you hoping to be Selby's next MP? Well, um, I'm sure you're referring to a quick uh, tweet that you saw by Michael Crick. But yes, no, um, I'm absolutely delighted to to be in the selection process there. And I look forward to making my case. But obviously, at the moment, still very much focused on the millennials and onward. OK, Sebastian Payne, director of the Onward Think Tank. Thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Well, who'd have thought that was coming, eh? Something to watch watch in the future, yeah. (laughs) Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars where people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marifa Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.